Chapter 5 Virtuous Freedom 1 Freedom From Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Galatians 4, 21-26 By a misfortune attached to the human condition, great men who are moderate are rare. And as it is always easier to follow one's strength than to check it, it is a thousand times easier to do good than to do it well. That quote from Montesquieu. And this quote from John Newton. It is a great mercy to be enabled to yield to his will, for everything and every heart must either bend or break before it. Freedom's Forgotten Nature Ask ten people if they like freedom, and you'll get nine or more thumbs up. Ask them what it is, and you'll likely get ten different answers. Freedom is one of the most well-loved and poorly defined ideas. Milton Friedman, the famous economist, continuously reminded Americans of his day that the typical state of humanity has not been the relative freedom of American life. The typical human experience has been tyranny, servitude, corruption, and misery, both historically and globally. Today, we usually define freedom in one of two ways. Number one, freedom to the absence of external restraints, as in no physical, moral, legal, or ideological limitations. Number two, freedom from the possession of sufficient resources to live as one pleases, as in no poverty, poor health, lack of education, and so on. These popular understandings are partly right and completely misleading. Older generations, older as in the 1700s and before, ones that paid more attention to the Bible, saw it differently. Freedom is the ability to do good. True freedom includes freedom to and from, but it is primarily freedom for. This is true of both spiritual and civil freedom. They saw that civil freedom must be built on something deeper because our slavery is rooted in something deeper. Edmund Burke, an Irish Christian statesman of the 18th century, expressed it this way. Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites, in proportion as they are more disposed to listen to the counsels of the wise and the good, in preference to the flattery of knaves. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere, and the less of it there is within, the more there must be without." It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Burke is restating the Christian belief that without virtue we cannot be free. Rights are not sustainable in a society without virtue. Virtue is the ability to restrain our appetites and obey the good, the true, and the wise. 
Without virtue, we will have no internal power to manage our compulsions and will therefore be enslaved to our own passions. This results in people who use their rights to harm rather than bless their neighbor. Consequently, if we cannot govern ourselves, we require governance from others, parents, laws and regulations, law enforcement, supervisors, licensing boards, presidents, bureaucracies, and so on. Freedom isn't just an issue of rights. It's also an issue of trust. Leaving our neighbor to their rights means we trust them not to use their freedoms to do us harm. Without that trust, our fear will tempt us to attack their freedoms to protect our own. Therefore, only widespread virtue can sustain the trust necessary for freedom. Those who live by their appetites are a danger and trial not only to themselves, but to everyone. The only way to control a person governed by compulsions is through coercion, some kind of external incentive or threat that demands cooperation. Coercion, of course, whether by good laws or bad tyrants, isn't a real solution. Sinful humans are as bad at governing others as we are at governing ourselves, and when the power to coerce others is laid in our hands, it leads all too reliably to corruption. Notice the progression. Compulsion leads to coercion, which leads to corruption. Most people have heard Lord Acton's famous quote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Abraham Lincoln claimed power was an even greater trial to character than all forms of hardship. He said, Almost all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man, give him power. Coercing others tends very rapidly toward the slavery of tyranny. Only supreme virtue has a chance at using power justly, so power and coercion can never solve the problem of a lack of virtue. This is why the American founders took such care to divide up power in government. They did not hope in governance to protect our freedom. They knew that widespread personal virtue is the only possible basis for civil freedom. In fact, Virtue is the only basis on which any relationship can proceed with freedom, because it's the only sound basis for trust. It's the foundation of love. This principle of American civil government was developed from the Bible. This is because the basis of civil freedom is the same as the basis for all freedom, whether social, spiritual, or moral. All free relationships must have what Lord Moulton called obedience to the unenforceables, and what Alex de Tocqueville called habits of the heart. Virtue must be upheld and developed by an internal impulse, causing us to love the good. Reflecting on the work of the Founding Fathers, Os Guinness includes a third element to accompany freedom and virtue. He describes these three as the golden triangle of freedom. Without this third element, we are still vulnerable to slavery and tyranny. With it, freedom and virtue can grow and grow together. This third necessary component is faith. So, how does it work? The Golden Triangle of Freedom God has lovingly shaped the world so that divorcing freedom from virtue cannot produce happiness, gratitude, hope, or justice. Seeking freedom as liberation from moral restraints requires rejecting virtue. This always leads to anarchy, and anarchy always leads to tyranny and slavery. Liberty, which is the presence of freedom, cannot last without virtue. 
Conversely, the full practice of virtue requires liberty, because doing something praiseworthy requires that you have the option to do evil or leave the good undone. Liberty and virtue depend on each other. Yet, while these two depend on each other, they are powerless to create each other. That's why a third thing is needed. Faith. Think about it. Freedom is a status, not a direction. Freedom needs something to stabilize and direct it, or it can just as easily be used for evil as for good. That stabilizing thing is virtue, which the Bible refers to in various places as godliness, holiness, and righteousness. But where do we get virtue? It's certainly not automatic in humans. Humanity's normal state is more vicious than virtuous. Virtue has to be forged, but by what? Only faith in something else can forge true virtue. The American founders applied these biblical principles to the nation, recognizing the following. Golden Triangle of Freedom Number 1. Faith, or religion, is necessary to create virtue. For virtue to exist, faith is required. Number 2. Virtue directs and sustains freedom. For freedom to be supported, virtue is required. Number three, freedom is the best environment for sincere faith and healthy religion. For faith to thrive, freedom is required. The third relationship may not be obvious. Faith, especially Christian faith, thrives in freedom, but becomes corrupt when it is forced or it is captured by a culture or state. Religious faith is most sincere and free from corruption, wherever it's wholly voluntary and not associated with any governmental power or cultural pressure. This environment leaves only the right elements, truth, beauty, and goodness, as motivations to believe and follow it. It is only with these motivations in place that faith can have the greatest effect on promoting virtue in people and consequently maintaining the integrity of our liberty. These three, faith, virtue, and freedom, all require and strengthen each other. Yet it begs a question. Faith in what? Does the object of the faith matter? Of course it does. Trusting sin or idols doesn't forge virtue. It empowers vice. There is a faith that not only saves, but also liberates, both socially and spiritually. It's the good news about Christ. In the previous chapter, we referred more broadly to this faith as having the mind of Christ. To understand how this faith in the gospel uniquely saves and liberates us, we need to understand more of what the Bible tells us about our spiritual slavery. Understanding Our Slavery In biblical terms, our most basic slavery is that we live dominated by the cravings of the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, All of us also lived among them at one time sinful and demonically deceived, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. In our typical state, we not only gratify the flesh, but we were guided by what it wants. That is, the flesh dominates our thoughts and feelings while we gratify its cravings almost compulsively. This enslaves us by controlling us from within, even while we think we're free. Peter said it this way, The false teachers promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19.
That's the bottom line. Whatever masters you is your master. If we don't master our cravings and compulsions, they will master us. The more we gratify the cravings, thoughts, and desires of our flesh, the more they tighten their grip on our will and our character, the more they become our master. This is precisely the meaning of Burke's famous line quoted previously. For people dominated by the flesh, quote, their passions forge their fetters, end of quote. Everything that enslaves our character can be traced back to obeying the flesh's appetites and will. This isn't only true about being mastered by sinful compulsion. Our compulsive passions forge our fetters. They make even more layers of chains binding our liberty. Compulsion builds the slavery of habit. It encourages people to control us because they fear our instability. It leads us to the idols of mammon that gratify our compulsions only if we pay ever-increasing costs that will degrade and impoverish us in every way. In the Bible, God called idolatry a kind of prostitution, selling ourselves for something that degrades and uses us. In every way, those who won't govern themselves will be governed by something else. Their passions form their fetters. So, if faith is the third part of the golden triangle, how does it remedy this slavery? A question of allegiance. Consequently, before virtue can bear fruit, it must be rooted in faith. Faith is ultimately a question of allegiance. Allegiance is trust in and faithfulness to something or someone. To whom do we belong, if anyone? What are we here for, if anything, and why? In Christian faith, this allegiance is trust and loyalty to God and a vision of reality based on what He has done through Christ in His creation, redemption, and restoration, such as having the mind of Christ. The spiritual shorthand for this is allegiance to Christ and His kingdom. Though Jesus is at the center of that vision, our faith must look even further back than Jesus in the cross, further back even than Moses or Abraham, to creation. Jesus completes the who of our allegiance, but creation tells us the what and the why. Creation shows us the supremely important distinction, the difference between the creator and the created. God is uncreated, perfect, and independent. He's the only being in that category. Therefore, all other beings and objects are created, contingent, subordinate, and dependent. So when God created humans, he made a different kind of thing. He made a created, contingent, subordinate, and dependent creature in his image or like him. He put his uncreated, divine likeness into dependent creatures, giving them the authority and responsibility to rule his creation. This is an amazing thing. God gave a created thing the work of creativity. He gave a produced thing the role of producing. He didn't just give us a job. He gave us His job, a job worthy of God. Think about how deeply this reality shapes all of creation. God gave us the entire creation account in the form of a work week, and then He demands our work week follow His pattern of creation and productivity. Is this a coincidence? No. He is showing us the pattern and dignity of our subordination and dependence on Him. 
He's teaching us how to live in allegiance to Him, and therein how to be like Him. It's popular to insist that being fully alive and realizing our identity means believing we are not subordinate to or dependent on anything else for our meaning or purpose. Not only is that not true, but it's simply not how people behave. People long for meaning, and we find it in something. All people live by allegiance, whether to ideologies, sports teams, children, spouses, vacations, fitness, past pain, ambitions, power, the approval of others, or the cravings of our nervous and digestive systems. Everyone's sense of purpose and actual behavior can be explained by a fairly simple set of allegiances. And it turns out that our allegiance and obedience doesn't only affect our actions. In time, we come to resemble the master we obey. All humans have faith in something, and we are all growing in the likeness of our masters. This is why God did not speak about people mainly in terms of faith and non-faith. He claims we trust either in Him, the true God, or we trust in other masters, our self-made gods and idols. In ancient times, these referred to specific named deities, but pagan deities always represented a human desire that we have always had and still have. Protection, strength in conflict, fertility, prosperity, good fortune, removal of obstacles, love and sexual companionship, sense of origin, explaining why the world is like it is, making sense of death, handling guilt and shame, and so on. These gods have not really gone away in secular modernity. We have simply traded the old totems of the pagan gods for new totems of modernity. The gods of modernity are just as much idols, the new mutations of mammon. We have never stopped, and we never will stop looking to something to approve of our pride, to comfort our fears, or to justify our bitterness. Jesus never feared we would serve nothing. He took his time to show and tell us we cannot serve more than one thing. You cannot serve both God and money, or mammon. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He was warning us that our idols are enslaving, choking, and dominating us, making us work with no rest, unlike the Creator. They are like the Pharaoh of Egypt, always wanting more and giving less. They demand that we make bricks without straw. It is precisely because we don't see ourselves as dependent, contingent, and subordinate image-bearers that we are so gullible in our enslavement to the modern forms of idolatry. We are deceived because we don't see our identity as a question of faith, and faith is a question of allegiance. When we start with creation, we can see that our freedom does not mean independence. It means not giving our allegiance to anything in creation over which God has given us governance. Real freedom is being dependent only on what is greater than ourselves, namely, the independent one. The great irony so lost on modern humanity is that we can only find freedom when we see that we belong to God and we give Him all of our allegiance. This becomes clearer when we think about allegiance in relation to the all-important creator-creation distinction. Ultimately, we have three options for objects of our allegiance— our identity, character, and purpose will be radically different based on where our allegiance falls. Allegiance to the Creator God results in right convictions which guide right human authority and love and justice. 
This allows us to be productive, creative, and enjoy creation without craving or hating it. Allegiance to human power leaves us in a state of self-deception about God, misunderstanding of ourselves, and rejection of God's authority. In this state, we lose our identity, provoke God, and consequently tyrannize and are slaves of one another, compelling us to compete ruthlessly to possess the pleasures and power in creation, multiplying hatred and conflict. Allegiance to the pleasures and comforts of created things causes us to be driven by our compulsion and craving for gratification. As a result, we value people and structures for their ability to give us what we crave, and we therefore consume and defile what God has given us for creativity and productivity. Only by putting our faith fully in God can we learn what freedom and virtue should look like in this world. If we put our faith in ourselves or other humans, we will wrongly inflict or submit to human tyranny. If we put our faith in creation and the pleasure it brings us, we will be mastered by our flesh and become slaves to our compulsions. It is only when we put our faith in God and give Him our full allegiance that we can live free of compulsion and coercion while being formed by convictions flowing out of His truth and goodness. It should be clear to us that we almost always harbor some mix of these three in our hearts. Even if we want to say our allegiance is to God alone, we can see the effects of compulsion and coercion at work, can't you? Seen this way, their presence is not evidence that our faith is false, but that worldliness is present and our allegiances are still divided. We are trying to serve both God and mammon. Jesus is onto us and he wants to free us. We experience virtuous freedom to the degree that our heart's allegiance to Christ is pure and undivided. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, Galatians 5 verse 1. So virtue and freedom come down to a question of faith. Idols and the flesh, the snowballing and the crash. We've talked about how the flesh makes us slaves to our cravings and compulsions, and idolatry is always the result of misplaced and divided faith. The third thing to understand about our slavery is this. The compulsion of the flesh and the coercion of our idols feed into each other in a snowballing effect. The more the cycle loops, the more binding it becomes, and the more resilient it becomes against anything that would divert energy or attention from it. Our flesh and our idols will always tell us they're acting in our best interest, for our happiness. They aren't. They are working a fixed system against us. They have a scam going. Since the flesh's craving can't be gratified by God, it can only turn to idols for gratification. But since idols can only offer the kind of counterfeit and diminishing pleasures that leave us perpetually hungry, they won't point to anything higher than the flesh. They are the perfect match made in hell. This is our self-imposed slavery. Our fleshly compulsion drives us toward the idol. The idol coerces us to pay the price of our gratification. But the gratification it offers doesn't lead to gratitude or satisfaction. It leads back to craving. We crave again and again and again. Around and around we go, from compulsion to coercion to compulsion to coercion, sometimes satiated but never satisfied, often gratified but never grateful, always doing more and getting less in return. 
becoming ever more desperate, proud, fearful, bitter, and self-obsessed, willingly to cross ever more risky boundaries to get the payoff we crave. Turning to idols for happiness, contentment, humble significance, and joy is like asking your drug dealer to introduce you to your future spouse. He's not in that kind of business. You can tell yourself a drug expands your mind, or a prostitute can tell you she loves you. But the sense of transcendence we find in idols is a deception. All it offers us is a semi-conscious fantasy with which we can numb ourselves to the nagging aches of deeper longings. Gratification, like a drug, yields diminishing returns, and the idol's price keeps going up. This is only possible because we believe two lies about our idols. Number one, we think we can control them. That's why we chose them over the Creator in the first place. God could ask anything from us, so we think that as long as we pay a fixed fee to our idols, we can have what we want indefinitely without having anything else demanded of us. And number two, we think our idols are a ticket to freedom, another way to say salvation. We believe they are the only thing that can free us by removing restraints that would hold us back or from a need that might hold us down. We've been listening to this slander of God for years. He's dangerous. He can't be controlled. He will ask too much of you. He's rigid and controlling. He can't be trusted to liberate you. In our compulsion for fake liberation, we will do whatever we think we need to do to get whatever we think it is. Worse, since our idols enjoy a monopoly in our minds, they can demand any price from us for the things we crave. Their fee isn't fixed. Coercion and compulsion perpetuate each other, trapping us in a never-ending, ever-deepening cycle of slavery. The result is a loss of our integrity and true identity. We lose our real selves. What tyranny could be greater? We do things that God calls wicked and say, I had no choice. But that isn't true. We gave ourselves to our craving for security. We look to our job, our marriage, or the approval of others for that security. And then we felt we had to protect that idol by paying whatever cost it demanded. We boxed ourselves into giving the idol a monopoly on providing liberation and salvation. We did all this because we decided that God was too risky an option for liberation and salvation. It comes back to trust, to faith. It's a question of allegiance. The crash. Finally, when we have sacrificed everything for the idol and come to rely on it completely, it crumbles. Our compulsion for a lesser liberation is really bondage, not only to us, but to the idol itself. Most of our idols are good things and have a real purpose in God's creation. But when we make these created things into gods, they can't bear the weight. The more weight we put on them, the more they resist us or begin to crumble. Not only will the idol not deliver as a god, but in the long run, it won't even be able to deliver as what it is. When our idol is a good thing, like children, work, health, love, or leisure, our idolatry will crush and defile it. Our kids will resent us. Our hobbies will feel empty. Work will feel more like a prison than a blessing. Everything bolts, buckles, or bores us under pressure it was never meant to bear. Whenever we put something in creation in the place of the Creator, we ruin it 
ruin ourselves, and rob God of his rightful place. The real cost of idolatry is the loss of God, ourselves, and everything in creation. Our idols only have power over us because they gratify cravings that are broken in the first place. When we allow these cravings to drive us to idols, and idols to coerce us into sin, we are walking into the beginning of damnation. But we do not need to submit to this snowballing and crashing tyranny. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We can be free of our craving flesh and impotent idols. They will still be present, but through faith our bondage to them can be broken. The Spirit will weaken their influence more and more. God will carry on the good work He began through faith. Philippians 1, verse 6, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 exhorts us to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. What began in faith proceeds by faith. Every advance against the compulsions of the flesh and toward virtuous conviction is an act of faith, a display of allegiance and loyalty to God as Christ, Creator, and King. Faith in the God of creation and redemption will grow virtue in us. Virtue will direct and sustain liberty, and virtuous liberty is the best environment for the growth and health of deeper faith. To end this wading through the mud of our slavery, let us remember one truth we often forget. God gives, produces, and cultivates, while sin robs and destroys. Sin is ruthless and barren. It can extract good things, but it cannot make anything. It's like digging a mine into someone else's property, gaining only by stealing. Sin can only enrich us by taking something that's designed for another purpose. Every sin is a perversion of a good in God's creation. It gives a cheap gain by losing almost all of creation's value in the process. Like a thief who pawns a stolen ring worth $10,000 for a quick 50 bucks. Sin contrives but cannot create. It's like eating seed corn God has given us to plant. It's an offense, a tragic waste, and a suicide. Yet, through faith, God's Spirit grows in us the tree of virtuous liberty that slowly bears more and more fruit over time, and from which more and more trees can be planted. From here, we can begin to discover the second half of our freedom. We have been freed from the tyranny of our sin, death, and our flesh. In the next chapter, we will examine what it is we were set free for.